20. Racing Thoughts As a child, there was a recurring nightmare that terrified me. Upon waking, I could never capture the image or the scene. The closest I could ever come to describing it was pins of light piercing through outer space, or shards of blinding white lightning splitting across an endless night. Along with these pins of light came the sounds of drums or barrels pounding or rolling in a crescendo as the light expanded in the darkness and grew nearer. First there would be one shard of light, but soon other shards would start out of the darkness and split the void, piercing and blinding until there were many shards and they converged and diverged in chaos, illuminating nothing but confusing everything. It reminded me of the void or chaos described in various creation stories of the world from various cultures, from Hebrew to Native American. The nightmare would wake me in a disturbed state. My mind would race to examine what the nightmare meant. I never fully grasped the images, but the dream felt like a painting of anxiety or a depiction of what racing thoughts feels like. In fact, I suspect that's what the nightmare signified or emanated from, not that I am a dream interpreter. This nightmare differed a great deal from those where I was being chased or had fallen off a cliff, because those made sense when I woke. I could gather myself in the safety of knowing that it was only a dream, but these shards of light and pounding drums scared me due to the uncertainty of form and meaning. The best scary movies are the ones where the director and storyline disallow the viewer from seeing or understanding the monster until Act 3, or take, for example, the movie Bird Box, where the monster is never seen at all. Uncertainty is what scares us and makes us act irrationally. For evidence of this outside of a dream, just consider the run on toilet paper when the Pandora's box of COVID-19 entered the stage of the world. How odd it was that millions sought two-ply tissue as their solvent for fear. Fortunately, I had already stocked up on toilet paper, so I had certainty that we would outlast the siege on the supply chain, but this phenomenon made for one of the most interesting behavioral things I've ever witnessed. I recall other behaviors that baffled me, such as people refusing to make eye contact, even outdoors on public trails where we stood far more than six feet apart. And I was reminded of the Ken Follett novel, World Without End, which describes a period of plague in the 1300s. One of the characters advises another not to look at anyone with the plague, quoting, you catch it by looking at sick people. Behaviors that happened 700 years ago appeared to be happening again in 2020. I also reread the opening of another book called The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio, which was written during the plague of the same period, but in Florence, Italy, and he describes varied reactions to the fear, which paralleled exactly what was happening in 21st century America. Some Florentines quarantined heavily, while others lived as if there were no concern at all. Some turned to prayer, and others to debauchery. The great thing about old literature is how it shows that human nature never changes even while the technology around us does. We learn things about the world through science, but we're still the same creatures and deal with uncertainty in polarized ways. We always seem to be rediscovering the truth or 
trying to redefine it because we want to rid ourselves of uncertainty. But that's not going to happen. Uncertainty is here to stay. And this reminds me of a quote by astronomer Robert Jastrow. He said, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. That isn't a quote to mock science, but it speaks to the beyondness that lies past our world and universe. I believe that there are things beyond science that cannot be found like atoms and planets can be found. In other words, we cannot get rid of the unknown and uncertainty, not with the hearts and minds that we are born with, not with the world we reside in. And honestly, I don't think we really want to remove uncertainty. We may think we want to remove uncertainty, but we don't, and here's why. The world would be uninteresting without uncertainty. There would be no fear, but nor would there be surprise. There would be no pain, but there would be no joy or wonder. If the world had certainty in all things and free will was not a thing, we would not have walk-off home runs or Hail Mary passes to win the game. We would not need to wrap gifts or experience nervousness before going on a first date. If we had 100% certainty on every event surrounding us, we would be machines. Philosophical arguments about determinism versus free will or materialism versus spiritualism, these go on for centuries, but it's clear to me that free will is real. Freedom is not a one-word slogan on a USA t-shirt. It's something much more than that. And I think this is a better definition. Freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. By free will, one shapes one's own life. And the more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. That's a catechism quote. Paragraph 1730 to 1738. Now that I'm warmed up, I can get to the point. I seem to need a longer stretch each time before I start to jog. And maybe that's just so I don't pull a muscle here. While uncertainty has an upside and can be fun, there is a flip side of the coin where anxiety, worry, and fear can cripple us. And this often happens in the night in the form of racing thoughts. What I mean by racing thoughts is the overactivity of the brain that keeps you staring at the ceiling and blocks any cohesion of thought. This often happens before a big event like delivering a work presentation or starting a new job. The night before a test or a game or a marathon often kept me awake, even when I seemingly was not upset or nervous about the day ahead. The brain just turns on and the switch to turn it off is temporarily out of order. Other events like moving to a new house or starting a large project or going on vacation, the details of these plans invade my head and toss, <clears throat> toss me about and they don't shake out. In all these types of activities, racing thoughts can bring stress, but the brain and nerves are chewing on something that could be constructive or at the very least, it won't kill you. This is the racing thoughts of anticipation and details, and this kind of worry can come fast and hard. 
but is tolerable mostly because you have some control over the upcoming event. Control is the key word here, as worry and fear increase in parallel to the grip on your desire for control. There is a fun kind of fear and worry, like that which comes from horror movies and roller coasters. The fear of a scary movie excites us just like the intense speed of a roller coaster drop because it feels like we could die, but we know that we won't, so it's a thrill, not actual fear. Fear without consequence is the fun kind. Horror movies and riding roller coasters, they take some courage to do, but the safety net is there. You can pause the movie. On a roller coaster, you have the assurance of engineering and the preview of hundreds of people ahead of you completing the ride in one piece. Real fear is the one where you have no certainty and no control. It's the kind in the late night that seeps into your mind hot and clutches your heart with its cold hand. You can't stop the thoughts as they team upon you like the zombies in The Walking Dead, and there's no engineer to fix it. The TV and phone can't drown it out, and it's too late to call a friend, unless you have a very good friend, without seeming insane, and without peering vulnerable, God forbid. The racing thoughts come hard upon each other, other like waves in the sea. You can medicate it away, if you're lucky, for the night, with maybe alcohol or drugs or sleeping pills, but they often just make it worse. And if not that day, then later on, and when you need to medicate again and again, and sooner or later, the medication stops working. This real fear is best met head-on in the only way that it can be turned back, and that is by prayer, by radical trust in God, because this real fear comes from yourself. Just like the boys in the Lord of the Flies book, the beast in the woods is out there. But the beast only exists out there because it is actually a projection of themselves. Trust always defeats fear. And fear is born from a focus on the self for the craving of control and certainty. Trust in something outside of the self is the cure. God's grace confers certainty. Grace and certainty comes to those who trust. I can't explain why. It just happens. A prayer like, now I lay me down to sleep, that will help a child, but an adult needs something a bit different, but in the end, just as simple and sincere. You need to yearn for the trust, and the grace will arrive. It will come to you. It must be a surge of the heart and a letting go. And this is hard to do especially for stubborn people like me. For people battling their vices, like those quitting drinking, trusting that you can make it through the night may seem like a bridge too far. Or another example, for parents who are up waiting for a teenager to come home, or for someone in mourning the loss of a loved one, letting go of fear may seem a mountain too high. In fact, racing thoughts often happen because of a loss. And I have heard many people that are quitting drinking talking about their loss of being normal and fitting in with their friends as a type of mourning, and it is. Saying goodbye to a vice really is like mourning the death of your old self, of your old life. I've had my share of pity parties, but they aren't fun, and there's no balloons or cake at those parties. Usually, I'm wanting my will to create action, to make something happen that won't, 
or more likely can't happen, and that makes free will a burden rather than empowering. The worry and fear can turn into anger, where we want to will away the sense of suffering, by any means, by pills or by miracles, whatever. We'll take anything to calm the thoughts. We want our freedom, our peace, our way, and and doggone it, we want some sleep. The question underneath it all is just this tiny little problem called suffering and evil. This tiny little problem is only the most difficult philosophical question and biggest blocker to opening any door to religious faith. And this is why C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, keeps selling year after year and sticks like glue to the best-selling list of books on death and grief. Because why? Well, why do we have to go through this? Why is there suffering and pain and struggle? And here is where I'm going to sidestep that question and refer you to read C.S. Lewis for that answer, not my writings. Somehow the brain can play games on you. And it reminds me of a Ghetto Boys song called My Mind Was Playing Tricks on Me, where the first lines sum up a night of racing thoughts. This song, to me, is the best summary of racing thoughts that I can think of. This song goes to the corners of fear and worry and comes out swinging. I've redacted a few of the the swear words from the song, but it starts out with him saying, I sit alone in my four-cornered room, staring at candles. At night I can't sleep, I toss and turn. Four walls just staring at me. You know, both rap and country music find these edge cases of our lives and conjure an experience in song from that deep seeking in the soul, and the words have teeth that will bite you if you're not careful. Later in that same song, a lyric says, Late at night, something ain't right. And he's got, so he's got the racing thoughts and he can't fix it and he can't explain it. There's something, something's just not right. You know, rap and country music, whose fans would probably not like to admit any similarity, they both touch upon these lonely and desperate moments, which is where the best art has always come from and always will. There's a macho attitude in both genres, but on the other side of macho sits loneliness in its various guises. There's the broken relationship, the aftermath of rejection, the places of unknown outcomes, the hours of weakness and despair, the isolation from bad choices, the agony of loss. These are the places of uncertainty where we can know for certain that there is a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And these are also the times when racing thoughts attack a soul. In those nights of racing thoughts, the replay of thoughts, they'll start in a trickle. The replays then get accompanied by newly invented thoughts or the spawning and ripening of completely unrelated thoughts, which then somehow mingle in with the others. All of these swarm into an invasion on the mind in an onslaught of whispers. And it's like a primitive CPU in a computer A single-threaded brain that we have cannot flip back and forth fast enough between the context of one thought to the next, and it soon becomes deadlocked. A comment from a peer or a family member will rewind and start again, rewind and start again, play over, play over. You come up with a thousand responses that you wished you had uttered, sometimes called stairway wit, where you thought of the response once you got to the stairway, too late to say it to the person's face. Or a comment on the internet can send you reeling, knocking you far off the road of tranquility and into a ditch. 
Concern over a child can drive parents to extreme worry as kids get left out or insulted or suffer some health issue that the parent cannot take upon themselves. And then there's money, always money, mostly its absence and never its surplus that bothers us. There's schemes that we have in place, plans, expectations, the fear of failure and the fear of missing out. In a million varieties, anxiety can not only invade you, but can conquer you in a matter of minutes. And the answer to anxiety is trust. To trust, you need to leap and not know where you will land. And that is a wild strategy, but it works, especially when other ideas may be leading you away from that choice. There is a passage in the powerful chapter 6 of John where Peter shows us what trust really means. And this is the only chapter in any gospel where Jesus loses followers after saying hard things while establishing the Holy Eucharist. And after seeing followers leave, Jesus says to Peter, do you now also want to leave? And Peter replies, where else would I go? I hear that response from Peter and it hits me like electricity. It, it almost stings me, the, especially the first time I read it because I realized it was true. I had to actually set the book down because I had to take a break from reading and digest it. I just couldn't read anymore. His simple answer summarizes faith. And once you know the answer, once you believe, there is nowhere else to go. And not only will you not leave, you don't want to leave. If you've tried everything else and you come to know that Jesus is the way, nothing can replace that faith. Peter knows he has found the way, the truth, and the life, even if it's difficult to understand or unpopular. Having found this answer to life's riddle, he will not abandon it. He will hold fast to it like the parable of the treasure in the field or the merchant and his pearl. And he will fail, he does fail, and he will fail again. As a human being, Peter is going to fail, but he will return again and again, as where else would he go? To what? To whom? He knows that the path to truth and peace is only through God. There is one even better gospel example of trust. Peter's saying, to whom else would I go, is powerful, but another example goes even further. There's Jesus himself in one of his most human moments in the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest. He must endure a night of racing thoughts. Even Jesus, who could calm the wind, who could walk on water, must face the terror of uncertainty and death. Temptation and desperation agonizes him as he knows the crucifixion awaits. This is Jesus, the Son of God, facing something like what we face, only with more serious and guaranteed consequences. And as always, always, without fail, he shows us how to live. The entirety of the Gospels is Jesus showing us over and over and over how to live our lives. And it took me a very long time to understand that. In that night dealing with his own fear of things to come, Jesus is praying. He prays to God. And you'll notice in reading the Gospels, whenever Jesus is facing something difficult, he prays. This is Jesus showing us how to live. And on the night before he died, he is asking for guidance and putting his total trust in God. 
To me, the question he asks to God and the answer he discerns is the answer to all of life's nights that are seized by fear. He wants to escape the coming suffering and ask God to stop what is happening. He experiences sorrow and worry and fear, and he too, like us, wants to control what is to come. And he says these words, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And that moment makes him so very human, as even he doubts, even he has anxiety. He's doing battle with a temptation to escape, to control, to win. But then he prays further and says, if this is God's will, then let it be so. He surrenders his will to God's will. This is the great, thy will, God, not mine, be done. That is the answer. It is always the answer. Even Jesus, the incarnate God who bore all our human fears and flaws, turned to God in heaven when he needed help in his night of racing thoughts. He shows us the way. Our nights of terror pale in comparison to the agony in the garden. But we can know the way through the fire because he showed us how. He gave us the map. These nights come for us all, and I can squirm, and I can worry, and I can let anxiety wreck me, or I can trust and say, Thy will be done, God. This is yet another version of surrender to win. It's another moment of that sentiment. And it's the same question as every time, and it's the title of this website, really. Why did Peter sink? Because he took his eyes off God. Because he wanted his own will to be asserted, not God's. Because he turned back to himself instead of keeping his trust steady. There is a passage from Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ that speaks to this free will problem which drives all of us crazy. When we don't get our way, how easily and how very simply we get upset and knocked off track. As long as we get our way, we are happy. But when our will is disrupted, we instantly flake out. This is from book one, from The Imitation of Christ. It goes, But too often, some hidden force within, some attraction that meets us from outside, will sweep us off our feet. Plenty of people are influenced in their actions by these undercurrents of self-seeking without having any idea of it. All seems to go well with them as long as everything turns out in accordance with their wishes, their plans. But when their wills are thwarted, they lose their balance and get depressed in no time. So free will is like a gift and a curse at the same time. And this is one of these interesting contradictions in Christian faith. Yes, I am free to make choices, but no, I don't get to control anything, really. Even if you are an atheist, God is there for you on these nights, and you can try it out because you have nothing to lose, and it's also free. No downloads or appointments are needed. If it doesn't help, then you can go on being atheist the next day, and the following morning, you don't need to tell anyone. You, you can seek out pills and mindfulness and therapy, which cost money, I'm not making fun of those things. I just wonder why there are so many of us so stubborn today to try prayer in the 21st century. I was like a mule. I wouldn't dream of trying prayer until I quit drinking and pretty much had to try it. 
but I was willing to try antidepressants and relaxation CDs and therapy and mindfulness things on apps. It's almost like in our consumer mindset, we want to pay for a product or we don't think it can be effective. If you try prayer, you don't even have to tell anyone that you did. It can be your own little secret. I think the stubbornness today is that we don't want anything budging in on our freedom, in quotes, because we don't want to be told no. This seems a very American and modern idea to me, to be the god of our lives and creator of our own worlds. The funny thing is that what's, what we really do is we are shutting out something that doesn't actually limit our freedom. It actually expands it. Here's a quote from the Catechism, paragraph 1742. The grace of Christ is not in the slightest way a rival of our freedom when this freedom accords with the sense of the true and the good that God has put in the human heart. On the contrary, as Christians experience a test, especially in prayer, the more docile we are to the promptings of grace, the more we grow in inner freedom and confidence during trials, such as those we face in the pressures and constraints of the outer world. By the working of grace, the Holy Spirit educates us in spiritual freedom in order to make us free collaborators in his work in the church and in the world. Almighty and merciful God, in your goodness, take away from us all that is harmful, so that, made ready both in mind and body, we may freely accomplish your will. Again, there's your will. Thy will, not mine, be done. In fact, when I read through this or I think about all that I've said in this episode, I, I just made a lot of words to say what a person named Padre Pio said in very few words. Padre Pio would say to people, pray, hope, and don't worry so much. That pretty much says it all. It seems so simple when you say it like that. His response was so concise that you can, you can buy a pair of socks with those words written on them. Pray, hope, and don't worry so much. I should take that as a hint to be brief. St. Francis said that we should always be brief since Jesus himself kept his words short on earth. I still have much to learn. So, in summary, pray, hope, and don't worry so much.